Welcome to 1075, Shortage on the Colorado River, a podcast series by the Climate Assessment for the Southwest that explores what a shortage declaration on the Colorado River would mean to those living in the Southwest. In this episode, three University of Arizona experts join me to discuss water supply and demand in the Colorado River Basin. Specifically, we'll talk about what are the stressors, how those may change, and how those changes may affect management and behaviors. I'm Zach Guido, CLEMA staff scientist, and I'm fortunate to have with me here today Drs. Bonnie Colby, George Friswald, and Kiyomi Marino. Why don't we why don't we just dive right in and, and discuss what the demands on the Colorado River are? And I, I think a, a good starting point is agricultural because it plays such an important role, at least here in Arizona. Um, but George, uh, what are some of the demands um, on the Colorado River? Well, agriculture uses about three quarters or more of the water currently in Arizona. Um, pr- pretty much throughout the West too, not just Arizona. Arizona is about representative of all the other states, so it's about three quarters of the water used which means that if there's cutbacks in water use, agriculture is going to be the one that has to adjust most. The rest of it is um, you know, urban use, commercial, industrial, and also uses you know, by the environment, which are also important. So ag is going to be the one that's going to have to adjust most to changes in water supply. Are there particular straws within agriculture that are bigger than others? I mean, there's the major field crops use a lot of water. We have a lot of high-value crops, but they don't have a lot of acreage for the amount of you know, dollars they're generating. So like big field crops, alfalfa is, is a major user of water just because it's so pervasively grown throughout the West. Alfalfa is one of the crops that's grown you know, through all the Western states, and it's relatively water-intensive. Um, cotton is another big user just because cotton acreage is so big. Um, but those are two big things. Wheat is important. Um, Colorado, there's a lot of dryland wheat, but there's irrigated wheat too. There's there's a fair bit of wheat in Arizona as well. We got agriculture, which 75% is a huge portion of the total water use. What are some of the other uh, demands on on the Colorado? So if we think about the Colorado River Basin as a whole, let's picture the big urban areas who are large water users in terms of the economic activity tied to the water, but as you can already infer from George's figure and 75% of the use being in agriculture, they consume a relatively small portion of the water, but the economic activity tied to their use is really large. So tied to the Colorado River, even though not necessarily located geographically in its basin, you have the whole Denver and Front Range area of the Colorado. They're not geographically in the basin, but they import large amounts of water. It's a key part of the water supply. Water, they take over the Rocky Mountains from the west side of the mountains in Colorado to the Front Range. And then, of course, we've got Las Vegas right there in the basin, sitting at the edge of Lake Mead. We've got the entire Los Angeles, San Diego corridor, which not located geographically in the basin, but imports a lot of water from the Colorado River Basin to Southern California. There's a lot of agricultural use as well as the urban uses in Southern California. Then naturally, we've got the whole Phoenix, uh, Tucson metropolitan corridor in central Arizona. And people can easily forget because it's another urban area not located inside the basin, but that draws a lot of water from the basin. The whole Albuquerque, Santa Fe, New Mexico urban corridor takes a lot of water through a trans mountain diversion project. So we've got all these big, really all the big urban areas of the Southwest rely on the Colorado River water. And I certainly shouldn't leave out Utah, Salt Lake City, again, not geographically 
inside the basin boundaries, but it imports water through the Central Utah Project. So think of all those major urban areas of the Southwest relying on the waters of the Colorado and being very concerned about how they would manage a cutback. Yeah, it's amazing to me because I didn't grow up in the in the arid west. I grew up in the northeast, and there's these big rivers, and the Colorado River is relatively small. If you've ever seen the Columbia, the Colorado River certainly looks small by comparison, but in our region, it's it's what we've got, and we rely on it heavily. So five million people, seven states, Mexico, draw water off this. So within the urban population, is that just for, let's say, uh, you know, dishwashers, showers? Consum- what, is there a differentiation of use within the urban Yes, great question, Zach. So in the urban areas around the world and arid regions, the primary component of city water use is actually outdoor water use for landscape, golf courses, public parks, soccer fields. Um, So there's some nice lifestyle and amenity values associated with having those green areas and desert cities, as well as what people like to do with their urban landscaping. So by far the majority of water use, and particularly in the summer season when water supplies are particularly in demand for both farms and cities, particularly in the summer season. Uh, the majority of urban water use is outdoor landscaping use. And of course, golf courses are economically course, important in these cities. Uh, they are intensive water users and they contribute to the economy. So everyone has to sort of decide what's right. the uh, appropriate trade-off. Um, but they're very important water users in the urban landscape and they attract a lot of visitors to the southwest especially from cold places in the winter. So did I get that right? I said 35 million people before. But is I that... think the estimate is around 40-ish. 40 it's going up. If we count Mexico, we do have to remember the whole Mexicali Valley and the large urban area of Mexicali and Tijuana also takes some water from the Colorado River Basin, so that may not be included in the figures that you're citing. Okay, so ag, big, um, in terms of water use, uh, Urban and, and industrial, are these, things, are these different? Urban yeah, industrial uses we would normally think of as very large-scale uses like mines and electric power generation. So these are important uses, and, and George has a good background in renewable energy and the way that solar energy uses water resources. So those would be considered industrial uses. Things like dry cleaners and our favorite brew pubs and so on inside cities are lumped inside the commercial use in a city. Okay, so per capita, then the, the urban area is more demanding on the river than, let's say, agriculture. Did I, did I misspeak on that? Well, I think what I would characterize urban demand being is there's what economists say demand is hardened mm-hmm. in that there's very limited amount of water demanded relative to something like agriculture, but the value people place on it is really, really high. And so, you know, people don't want to give up right. their dishwashers. People like to take showers, drink water, things like that. Those demands are, are relatively small in the grand scheme of things, but people are willing to spend a lot of money to make sure that they still have um, those types of water uses. That, that's one reason why, you know, if there's adjustments, agriculture is going to end up doing, you know, a lot of the adjustment because people like to, you know, take showers, brush their teeth, that sort of thing. Right, so hold that thought, though, because we do want to come to how all these things are sort of interplaying with each other and how they evolve over time. We might want to add quickly that urban areas have shown a great ability to adjust, especially under very urgent dry conditions and cutting back on lawns and landscape use. And newer developments in general in most of the southwest are much less emphasis on turf and water-intensive landscape. 
But still, as George said, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the kind of adjustments that likely will be needed. Oh, and then another thing I'd like to mention is that you don't really think about it in a desert state, but water-based recreation is really important on the Colorado. There's not only like the white water rafting, but just lake-based recreation. So for example, Lake Mead National Recreation Area, it's part of the national park system, gets about twice as many visitors each year as the Grand Canyon. You don't really think about it. If you talk about like the top five national park system sites, it's Lake Mead is top, followed by Grand Canyon Zion, and then Glen Canyon, uh, which is um, Lake Powell. So the top four, two of them are, are water-based. And so when we're managing water, one of the things we're doing is we're adjusting the reservoir levels to make sure that all these other uses have a more stable supply of water. But those local communities are affected because tourism and visits are affected by the level of the lake. So in those you know, the communities that depend on lake tourism are, are affected as well. What about in terms of the, the climate demand, evaporation or transpiration, or what, what are some of the ecosystem uh, straws, if you will, into the river? Um, <clears throat> well, you mentioned uh, evapotranspiration. So there's um, uh, on the well in the both in the the lower and the upper basin, of course. There's there's riparian communities. Um, that depend on uh, water in the river, um, especially during the, the growing season. This isn't such an issue in necessarily in the lower basin, but maybe in, in the upper basin in some, uh, on some reaches. But they require for, for their survival um, you know, a certain amount of water during the growing season. And this certainly, uh, it, it doesn't draw uh, a lot per se, but um, can take estimates between... 500,000 acre feet and maybe more than that uh, for the lower basin. Uh, and I've heard numbers like evaporation in terms of just in, in, in the lakes, somewhere in 4 to 5 or 6 percent or something like that. I don't know if those have, I'm not, I don't know where I'm drawing those numbers are, but they st stick in my head. But they're, they're actually fairly high percentages of, 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 the, of the annual flow. It's not trivial. Yeah, it's not trivial, uh, but it's not. Uh, and it, de it definitely does need to be factored into when you're thinking about water balance uh, uh, on the Colorado River. But um, in the past decade, evaporation rates, say, for example, uh, of, the, of the big reservoirs, reservoirs like Mead and Lake Powell, are actually um, lower than they have been mm. because the, uh, the level of the reservoirs is lower. <laughs> less surface area. Less surface area, yeah. that's right. That's so... That might be the silver lining. <laughs> uh, so Kiyomi's um, comment on the evapotranspirative needs, the water demand needs of natural vegetation reminded me that there are a number of legal obligations throughout the Colorado River Basin that require us to consider water needs for endangered spe uh, species, particularly fish, but other species that rely on water-dependent habitat. So both in the upper basin and the lower basin, there's very active programs co-managed by federal and state agencies that protect fish and other habitat. And of course, they also provide recreation opportunities in addition to the large reservoirs that George referred to and the large visitor numbers and local economies that depend on those. There's all the fine fishing streams, uh, whitewater streams, and so on in the mountainous areas of the basin. And some of them are very likely to be affected either by climate change itself and its effects on stream hydrology, 
or by arrangements that propose to transfer water from one area to another, say to provide cities with more reliable water during long-term drought, and could inadvertently deprive some of these high environmental and recreation value mountain streams uh, of the water that people are accustomed to having and enjoy and that local economies depend upon. Well, that's interesting, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, just about how all of these different straws are competing, and, and really when you're looking forward, how there's some laws that are protecting some uses more than, than others, and there'll be sort of a, a dynamic landscape that's evolving as, as our water futures change. But um, before we go there, okay, so we've got, we've got the climate, we've talked a little bit about climate, we've talked a little bit about agriculture, we've got urban, which in, holds in the population and, and, and the industrial needs. Uh, energy is a big one in my, in my mind, at least. Can anybody speak to what the sort of demands are for, for energy or what may, or, or, or perhaps that water use portfolio for energy will, will, will change in, t- in time as well? I could speak about um, energy use for power plant cooling in the large thermoelectric plants in the Colorado Basin, of which there are a number of them. Those plants either use groundwater, some of them divert surface water to cool, cool the plants, uh, make it possible for them to operate safely. But that water is consumed only in a small percentage, and most of that uh, cooling uh, plant water is returned back to the hydrologic system. So the consumptive use is relatively small for conventional electricity generation. But, of course, we have a lot of renew- interest in renewable energy in our basin as well. Right. And then, obviously, if water levels drop really, really dramatically going to affect hydropower, but that is something that would have to be really, really extreme over, you know, multi, multi years before it would come to that. Because again, we're talking about demand being hardening. People like to turn on the light switch and have electricity go on. So things are going to be managed at the reservoir level to make sure that the hydropower is still there. Um, But, and, uh, sure. But the, in terms of the, the hydropower generation at the reservoirs, uh, as the reservoir lo- levels lower, the, the, the generators, or the turbines, I believe, become less efficient in their energy produ- uh, production. See, what I'm talking about is just when you get, you get beyond a certain point, and then you, you don't have anything, yes. and they're going to do everything to yes. stop that. But yeah, you're right, that you, know, you can start to have inefficiencies and problems even before that phase. Glen Canyon Dam and Hoover Dam are huge hydropower generators and really important to the economy of the Southwest. And they provide low-cost hydropower, and a lot of it goes to ag districts some goes to other cities and other types of users. So those parties will want to make sure that low-cost, valuable hydropower is protected. So then um, in looking at all of these sort of uses or stresses or however you want to characterize it, um, a lot of them point in a certain direction, like populations projected increase in, in, in the Southwest. Uh, climate, we've heard a lot about climate warming, and that may ramp up the evaporative demand. Agriculture, I mean, we got to feed our, we got to feed the, the Southwest, we got to feed the country. Um, so maybe food production um, goes up as well. Ener- we want energy to go up. Uh, people want to have their um, water in the lakes for tourism. We have mandated rules for the flows and ecosystem. How does all of these things fit together within the context that right now we're probably already over-allocated on the Colorado and with the looming um, uh, potential shortage where you're cutting 
use? Like, how, how do all of these things compete? How, how does it play well, out? Well, okay, how does it play out? One, to make it concrete, like what if they actually declared a shortage? Well, the first thing they would do is different, different users have different priority. The most junior user on the river right now is agricultural uses in, in the center of the state of Arizona. So they would have their water cut back first. Um, they would have to cut back pretty much all their uses in, until you ratchet down to whoever has the next, you know, most junior right and so on and so forth. So some areas wouldn't be affected very much at all. For example, the western part of Arizona, like Yuma County, um, you know, other places along the river have very, very senior water rights. They're growing very high value crops, uh, a lot of fruits, veggies. They're going to continue to do that because um, they, basically they would be cut back last. They're growing, you know, so like our vegetable production is, is probably not going to be affected at all. That Western Arizona is going to be, you know, is a like, national, if not international, center of ag production, and that really isn't going to change. That said, the center of the state is a lot more vulnerable. Now, they would have surface water, you know, basically their, their surface water supplies are going to be curtailed, but... Um, center being Phoenix. Area, Maricopa. Maricopa County, Pinal County, and to a lesser extent, you know, Pima County. But what, but, but ag in Pima County is really pretty small right now. But the areas that are really going to hit are Pinal County and, and Maricopa County. Now, the growers there have groundwater. There's, you know, there's, they're, they're on top of aquifers. They have a right to pump groundwater. Now, the Groundwater Management Act had capped how much water people could use, but the cap was set at water use rates in the 70s when agricultural prices were at an all-time historic high and water use was at a high. And so it was, and then after that, farm prices fell and, and agricultural production and water use declined in the state just automatically when prices fell. But farmers could accumulate which were called, what are called flex credits which were credits, basically the right to use water uh, that they weren't using now. So farmers have accumulated huge amounts of flex credit. So institutionally, they have a right to pump enormous amounts of groundwater if they so choose. So they're not really legally restricted because they've accumulated all these flex credits. What Where they're restricted is that because people have relied on surface water, and this is partly by design, the whole idea was that you know, the surface water supplies are renewable, the groundwater supplies are exhaustible, so the idea is we wanted to encourage producers to use the, re the renewable supplies of water, but that means that in a lot of irrigation districts, people haven't maintained wells, so if suddenly they, you can't just say, oh, we'll just pump, it isn't like you flip on a switch and you start to do it. They would have to, like, refurbish some wells, some wells would have to be deepened, so there would be costs to growers of actually going after groundwater, but the folks who can do so profitably will do that. Some some growers won't, and there'll be a reduction of production in the state. Um, but you're going to see a, a, a big shift toward more groundwater use in the center of the state. Some of the, the ag producers that are going to get hit the most are the dairies, mm -hmm. because they rely on alfalfa, which is fairly water-intensive, to, to feed their, their animals. So you know, milk production in the state is going to get affected. So ag kind of has like a, a little bit of a built-in buffer. I mean, there's another source that they can perhaps tap into. I mean, I, in my understanding, it's not ideal because the costs are 
are higher, and and the quality can be worse than mm-hmm. uh, than surface water. If I'm, if I'm getting that correctly, but there is sort of a, uh, I mean, maybe it's the market that plays out a little bit. Right. With, with there- there's a lot of adjustments you know, we can do. Like we've looked at what you know the Bureau of Rec did a, you know, their final uh, environmental impact statement of what would happen if a shortage was declared, um, and they they did actually quite a nice job, I think, of of seeing what would be the impacts on ag. But one of the things they assumed was that well, to make up the shortages, water land would just be fallowed, so they would basically completely take land out of production. Uh, we've done some research, you know, basically accounting for the fact that okay, growers have different kinds of responses. I can grow a crop that uses, you know, three acre feet of water per acre instead of four. I can I can uh, you know, practice deficit irrigation to a certain extent. Um, I could um, uh, you know, adopt more efficient irrigation technology. Uh, you know, they're they're going to go and try to refurbish wells and and um, Use groundwater supplies, so growers will adapt. I mean, it's you know it's going to be costly to them, but it's not going to be as costly as them just responding to the the shortage by just completely shutting down operations. You will get some of that. Some land will get fallowed, but there's there's kind of a host of different response mechanisms people can resort to. Go ahead. Uh, following up on that, in addition to those areas of the state that would have their Central Arizona project water cut back under a shortage declaration and might switch to groundwater, or might adopt some of the other strategies, George is referring to those urban and industrial users that feel they may be vulnerable to cutbacks at some degree of shortage declaration will naturally be, and are in fact currently, talking to the agricultural areas of the state that have the most senior water entitlements, and those are those agricultural districts along the Colorado River, here I'm speaking of Arizona specifically, that have very senior rights to the river that far predate the uh, priority of the Central Arizona Project. So there have been several pilot programs, some of which federal agencies, including the Bureau of Reclamation, helped pilot to see what kind of agreements might be workable for temporarily reducing agricultural water use to another sector. Uh, could have use of that water, sometimes for federal purposes um, needed for managing the river, such as salinity levels in the river or bypass flows related to the uh, desalting plant in Yuma. So currently the Central Arizona Project has a pilot arrangement with an irrigation district in southwestern Arizona to reduce consumptive use in the irrigation district in return for water that then will be set aside for use by the CAP should it face um, shortages that would pose significant costs um, and difficulties for those who receive CAP water in the central part of the state. So that's another adjustment mechanism. Fortunately, we have a great history of these kind of voluntary arrangements within Arizona as well as in all of the Colorado River Basin statements where there's a voluntary negotiation using involving a lot of uh, lawyers and engineers and hydrology uh, expertise to come up with arrangements whereby some of the water consumptively used in agriculture and temporarily or sometimes permanently be made available in one of the other economic sectors. I wanted to go back to uh, Kiyomi a little bit and, and ask her about the best science right now, thinking in terms of what the future uh, flows in the Colorado may look like uh, under under climate change. I mean, what Will we be in a, in a, in a scenario in which we just have a little bit less, less water to work with? Uh, than we currently do? 
Yeah, that uh, that's uh, that's kind of an area of varying levels of uncertainty, <laughs> from low to high. Um, what what we do know, uh, have a lot of confidence in, is that temperatures will rise uh, over the next century. Uh, by twenty one hundred, estimates are between one and five degrees Celsius. Um, there's less certainty on sort of what precipitation is going to do, uh, in particular. Uh, in the uh, in the upper basin, where you know estimates of up to around eighty five percent of the runoff is generated in, in, from the upper basin, and so um, so that's a that's a huge uncertainty. But um, even if we if we if we consider that uh, precipitation doesn't change, an increase in temperature will will result in decreased stream flows in, in, on the Colorado just because of greater um, evapotransportive demands, and there's estimates, for example, that an increase in one degree Celsius will result in a decrease of, of about six and a half percent of stream flow at Lee's Ferry. We're fairly confident that stream flow at Lee's Ferry is going to decrease, but by how much, we're, we're, we're not sure. Uh, and, you know, and there, there, there could be fluctu- year-to-year fluctuations. It could be... Well, that's why you have the big, the big basins or the big reservoirs the big, to help right, smooth exactly. that out. Yeah. So I guess the, the sort of question that's been on my mind is going back to what you said, George, and a little bit of what you said, Bonnie, about, I mean, there are these adaptations that can occur. We didn't talk that much about conservation, and there's, there's, there's that as well. But is the water situation, I guess, who wins, and, and, and what are the opportunities, I guess, and, and what are the consequences? It's, it's, it can be sometimes port- portrayed as, you know, this looming threat of uh, a shortage as being... Uh, categorically a negative thing. Does this present opportunities for us? I mean, what are the, what's the sort of negative and and positive aspects of this? I think the Southwest has a big advantage worldwide due to the arid conditions and now the large numbers of populations that live here. The culture of urban water management has shifted dramatically in the last several decades to focus on lower outdoor water use, changes in landscaping and landscape preferences. We have examples of Las Vegas, for instance, paying a dollar amount per square foot of lawn removed to homeowners in order to reduce outdoor landscape use. So we have a lot of innovation happening in this basin simply because we have large urban populations in a desert. And um, it's my impression, uh, leaving to George to comment in more detail, that some of the agriculture in the basin has become very uh, efficient in its water use. And even though the farmers themselves may pay a relatively small amount per unit of water made available to them, especially if it's made available through big federal water projects, they're well aware that the water has value and there's been a lot of motivation to think about how it could be used more effectively. So some of the adaptability and some of the cultural shift, I would say, has already begun in a way that's going to be helpful to us. And these, these adapt, adaptions tend to be sort of incremental ratcheting, or are we seeing sort of wholesale alterations, or, or do you expect that we would see sort of wholesale alterations once we hit a shortage? Well, we've seen adaptation in cities, for example, from um, nice green lawns as being what everybody wants and expects to new developments that have very low water use landscape. And that's already occurring. That's a value shift as well as a water management practice. 
we do, I mean, we've seen examples during drought of people being told you cannot water your outdoor landscape more than once a week, for instance, in Southern California. That was very drastic. People resented it. It was difficult to enforce. We haven't had to do that in Arizona, to my knowledge, and it's the kind of thing an urban water provider would rather avoid having to do. They'd rather think of other mechanisms um, to bring down the more optional portions of urban use. Yeah, I would, I would I definitely agree with Bonnie. I mean, I think there's, be, there's actions already being taken. I don't think people are waiting for a shortage to be declared. And, you know, one example of this is the, is the basin study that was uh, completed at the end of 2012, where, you know, um, all seven uh, basin states plus NGOs and, and, and the tribes and many different organizations got together and, you know, sat down and, and talked about this imminent um, possible imminent occurrence. I mean, the shortage on the on the basin and, and what can be done with it about it. One of the positive things about having big reservoirs is it doesn't sneak up on you. <laughs> there have been surprises. Well, there, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, it was a little bit surprising. I think to folks in the beginning of the two thousands, how fast the reservoirs dropped. But but yeah, it's provided a, an amazing, a great buffer to the system and have a, has allowed in that buffer even if it's just a couple of years, has allowed people to come together and talk about, um, you know, what they might do if, if conditions uh, proceed along the same path or, or not. And I think there's already been a lot of institutional adjustment. Like in agriculture, people who are growing high-value crops that would be a lot more sensitive to having water supply uncertainty have shorn up their, their water rights in the, in, or higher-value crops are grown where people have more senior water rights, people who have more junior water rights, where things are more iffy, they ha they've already thought of a lot of different kinds of contingencies. And if you look at a lot of the water management institutions, they've done a lot of outreach to all the people they're supplying water about if there were a shortage, what would this mean? What are your options? What are we doing? There's a lot. There's been a lot of uh, you know attempts to to bank water. To take surface water and put it back in the aquifers, you know, for this eventuality. Yeah. So there's been a lot of institutional adjustment already, and there's also the groundwork that where people through these outreach messages kind of know what would happen if there's a shortage. These are the kinds of options that you have. But once the shortage is declared, it may take people a little bit by surprise. It's like, oh, I always thought this could happen, but um, um, you know, now that it's happened, it's almost like having like an earthquake preparedness kit in California. It's like you don't expect an earthquake to really hit, but then when it hits, you, it isn't like you didn't have any any tools. And I think what the idea is that people may it may not be that real to them that a shortage will hit, but they have some tools. They've thought about this. And that will help. And in terms of technology, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. You know, there's a lot of you know work that's been done on like improving irrigation efficiency. Um, you know, improving you know ir oh, you know water use efficiency of of you know energy technologies. So there are a lot of things that will get spurred uh, in economics. They call this induced innovation. That there's some kind of shock when when something starts to become scarce. There's this impetus to develop new technologies that are conserving of that scarce resource. And so 
that is likely to happen. There'll be this short-term pain with adjustment, but I think one of the things that's going to come out of it is you're going to see a lot of innovation um, in water and conservation technologies and practices that weren't there before. Well, that's a, that's a really good segue to our, um, our, our next episodes because we want to dive a little bit more into the nuances of how individuals and, and, and the sectors will are preparing for and will... Um, will maybe change behaviors or change uh, strategies or something as as this uh, as this sort of pl- plays out. So I think I uh, just want to thank all of you for Kilmi, George, and, and Bonnie for for joining me. That was uh, we could probably talk for another hour on this, but uh, we'll we'll leave it at a half hour. So uh, thanks a lot. <laughs>